Hi, this is Andrew Phillips. Thank you for downloading the Gramier Church of Christ Sermon Podcast. If you have any questions or if you'd like to contact us, check out our website at graymere.com. We'd also love for you to visit with us in a worship service. You're always welcome at Graymere Church of Christ. Honor and a privilege to be with you and to study with you tonight. Um, normally, I do exegetical preaching. I just take one passage of Scripture and take that one passage of Scripture and you look at uh, facts. Facts lead to concepts and concepts lead to applications. This is such a complicated topic that I wasn't sure I could just stay in one passage. So we may bounce around a little bit, but we won't bounce around a lot. Because there's several things when we talk about values. Uh, there, there's a, a couple of different facets to that. So the first thing is that when you start teaching about what is valuable, what you focus on gets measured, and what you measure gets focused on. And you create a culture almost subconsciously simply by the thing that you give emphasis to. Um, if you take a police department, for example, and their punch, their push is how many calls for service do we run? You can have an officer who just answers the radio every time, and on paper, he looks like he's doing a bang-up job, but he may not write a single ticket. <laughs> and so what you focus on gets measured, and what you measure gets focused on. An interesting thing to do, and you'd, you'd have to do it outside of a church context. If you went into the teenage classroom tonight, or you went into the Voyager's classroom tonight, and you gave a survey question, simply because they are contained in a building, they would answer it differently. But at some time, you wanted to just have a, like a weird, spontaneous conversation with your kids. You're driving down the road, headed to Dairy Queen or softball practice. You say, hey, if you had to list the top five things that we talk about in our family, what would be the things that are most important? I did that as a survey as a youth minister one time. I got a list from the parents when the kids weren't in the room. I got a list from the kids when the parents weren't in the room. Would you be shocked to know that the two lists were different? The parents were smart enough to know, hey, he's asking a church question. God first, church next, marry a Christian. The kids were, get off the phone, make good grades, don't watch this on TV, and don't take pictures of yourself and post it on the internet. That's what they were hearing from their parents. So when we start talking about values for kids, kids are going to basically recreate the culture that they're in, whether they do it consciously or subconsciously. And so the first thing we have to do is make sure that our Christianity, our spiritual self-identity, permeates everyday life. And one of the big mistakes I see happening sometimes is we tend to compartmentalize our Christianity. Uh, if I talk about having a family devo, has anybody ever struggled with family devotionals? This means yes, this means no, this means you're not voting, all right? What happens when we do family devos? Well, it, it's almost like miniature church. Dad gets the family together, and he stands up, and Dad's kind of awkward, and it's like, well, welcome to family devo. Uh, I should make some announcements. The, the dog should be fed. <laughs> Someone's room is not clean. Things are growing in the upstairs bathroom. We're proving the theory of evolution, you know, that kind of stuff. Well, and then you, you end up with it being this miniature church service, and, and I don't think that's what family spiritual identity really looks like. Now, I discovered this principle I call conversational spirituality. 
and I discovered it completely by accident. I got asked to speak at a retreat, and it's very, I like getting to be a guest speaker, I like going places. When you're a young minister, that ship has sailed, crashed, and sunk to the bottom of the ocean. But when you're a young minister, you get off your, you, you drive into camp, you get out of your truck, and oh, Lonnie, we're glad you're here. You get to camp with the boys, and they put you in the boys' cabin. When you're an older minister than Brother Jones, we have an air-conditioned cabin for you, and it's quiet. Okay, you can tell when you, well, you, you walk into this boys' cabin. First thing you do is you find a top bunk. Top bunk in a corner. That way they can only approach you from one direction. It's almost like Thermopylae. You feed them into a fatal funnel. And you're not supposed to bring a knife to camp. I always do. And so you go in, you throw your stuff up, you climb up on the bunk. And when you get up on, on the top bunk, all these little eyes are looking at you, and you pull this big buoy knife out. You hang it upside down from the rafters. Point up, handle down. You lay down, you raise up, put your hand on it. You put your hand on it. Then you look around at this silent cabin of boys and you go, if you boys will be quiet tonight, I probably won't have a flashback. And then you sleep peacefully. Nobody messes with you. They don't hide your underwear. They don't put shaving cream on you. None of those shenanigans go on. So I go to this camp. I go to my routine. It's quiet as, you know, as the church foyer on Super Bowl Sunday. All right? And about midnight, I hear this, hey, Lonzo. And I was young enough that I still went by a nickname. Hey, Lonzo. Well, now I've got to look out of the top bunk. If you reach over, they'll grab you, just like the monsters that live under your bed. So I go, what? And this flashlight comes on. And this kid named Chad Smith. Chad is a retired Huntsville police officer. He was one of our snipers forever. I met him on this trip when he was 15 years old. He said, I usually ask everybody what their favorite Bible verse is. I forgot to ask you. It's midnight in a concrete block cabin. I crawled off that bunk and sat on a dirt floor. And said, well, you know, my favorite Bible verse changes sometimes. It depends on the mood I'm in and the thing that I'm facing. Well, then a light came on over here, and a light came on over here, and a light came on over here. And, and this bunch of teenage boys was sitting in the floor talking about the Bible like you talk about NFL football or NASCAR racing. And I realized that, that the value of your spiritual self-identity is, is that spirituality has to be a culture or a subculture in your home. It's not something we compartmentalize. It's not something that is just done on Sundays. You know, we had all this stuff during the, the COVID thing, and it was like, oh, we can't... Go to church. No. What you do in this building is not church. What you do in this building is worship. What you do out there is church. And we've got to, to pass it on to our children that our church life is not building centric. And so how do you pass those? Well, God did this in Deuteronomy chapter 6. He's telling Moses it's time to get the second generation of Israel ready for covenant lifestyle. It's time to get the people who are the children of the people that we've rescued out of Egypt and given the promised land to. And you think that what we do is, is we send our kids to the experts. We have ministers and youth ministers, and, and there's now youth ministry degrees. There wasn't a degree in youth ministry when I started youth ministry. And you've got all these professionals. Was well, there anybody more professional as far as connection with God than Moses? And you'd think, okay, Moses, we're getting the next generation ready, so have all the kids line up and attend your thing. This is what God tells Moses. 
Deuteronomy chapter 6, and we'll do verse 6. Now let's start at verse 4, the Shema, the Hebrew word for to hear, Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be on your heart. And you shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up, you shall bind them as signs on your hand, you shall be frontless between your eyes, you shall write them on your doorpost and write them on your gates. God said, you want to teach your children what's valuable? Your children understand what's valuable by the stuff you talk about every day. And when you're walking, and when you're sitting, and as you lie down, and as you rise up, and they're on your bracelets, they're on your t-shirts, they're on your ball cap, they're on the front porch, they're on the side, the flag in your yard. Now, all I've got to do is drive down any neighborhood and, and look at the flags in the yard. I never realized in this part of the country there are so many Texas fans. It usually gets me in trouble with the orange tea people. All right? I know that's not what that T stands for. But you can walk into my house and tell what, what's valuable because of what's on my door and on my wall and on my front lawn and on my T-shirts and on my ball cap and on my bracelet, right? Well, when we teach our kids what's valuable, we teach them what's valuable simply by what we focus on and what we measure. And what is the message that our children are getting? First thing happens when they rise up, did you do your homework? First thing that happens when they come home, do you have any homework? What are your grades? Are you the starting pitcher? Are you the starting quarterback? Are you the head cheerleader? Are you fast? Are you strong? How many push-ups can you do? Can you throw a ball 70 miles an hour? And is it funny that our children grow up with a, with a, a cognitive dissonance about what is really, really valuable? Well, God told Moses... This is what you do. You, first of all, you take these things that I've written and have given you, and you put them on your heart. And if they're on your heart, then you don't wait till Sunday morning or Sunday night or Wednesday night or vacation Bible school or retreat or summer camp to have a discussion about this. But these things happen spontaneously, and they happen organically. You talk about these things with your children when you rise up and when you lie down and when you're sitting and when you're walking, and they're on your gate, they're on your post, they're on your bracelet, they're on your T-shirt, they're on your ball cap. And, and your children learn that, that spirituality is not something we do, it's something we are. And, and what I am, my identity controls my choices. The other thing that, that, that you would find is that when these things are taught, it's more important to teach values than it is to teach rules. If I teach a rule, then there's a line that I can get to and it, it's debatable. How tight is too tight, how low is too low, how high is too high, how loose is too loose, how much is too much, and how far is too far. That, that's a line I can kind of play with. You know, I, I mean, if you have children, you have the not touching, can't get mad, right? <laughs> you, some kid teases the other kid, you know, I'm not really touching you, but I'm in your face. But if you say, hey, I want you to be nice to your brother, you don't have to talk about how far or how close. I want you to be pure. I want you to be honest. I want you to be right. And all of a sudden, we begin to teach values rather than rules. We teach principles instead of techniques. And once we do that, what happens is our children say, hey, these things are valuable because they permeate 
recreation, they permeate work, they permeate school, they permeate athletics, they, they permeate academics. And so teaching our children what is valuable is basically going to be us setting up a culture in our home that this is valuable, that our identity is not that I'm an A student, a B student, a starting quarterback, a leading cheerleader, or first chair in the band. Teaching our children what is valuable comes from a sense of identity that says I'm God's student. I happen to make C's. I'm God's athlete. I happen to play football or soccer. I'm God's gymnast. I'm God's band kid. And the identity that we belong to God first and foremost takes the place of all the other discussions and all the other distractions we can have with our children. And so when, when thinking about those terms, I thought, what's, is there a good passage that talks about values other than that? Well, when, when Jesus grew in wisdom and stature in favor with God and favor with man, you notice that takes place after he left temple. He's in temple. He's, he's with the doctors. He's with the lawyers. He's with the professionals. And an obscure Jewish carpenter, and for all practical purposes, a 24-year-old Jewish girl, take him home. And not until he goes home with an obscure carpenter and a little Jewish girl does he grow in wisdom and stature and favor with God and favor with man. Because God saw the parental influence as more valuable than the temple influence. God saw these untrained, for all practical purposes, illiterate Jewish people as better than a scribe, a Pharisee, or a Sadducee to model and mold the Son of God. And so when Paul writes to a young man, a young man that, that Paul has a parental role with, he will call Timothy his son in the faith. Notice what he says to Timothy. If you look in 1 Timothy chapter 6. First Timothy chapter 6, verse 6. Now, godliness with contentment is great gain. That's, that's a value statement. This is worth a lot. It, it's worth much. Godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and it is for certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. So Paul tells Timothy, you've got to establish this principle in your life. And it's a balance between spiritual things and material things. Godliness accompanied by contentment is of great value. Number one, because there's a, there's a temporary condition to the, the material things. You brought nothing into this world. You'll bring nothing out. I make baby predictions all the time. Some, you know, one of the youth group kids will come up and they've been married. And Mr. Lonnie, did you know we're going to have our first child? I'm like, that's great. Would you like me to make a baby prediction? Yes, I'm 100% accurate. Okay. Look at the little girl. I said, do you mind if I touch your tummy? I touch your tummy. You know what? I predict it will be born naked. And I've never been wrong. They don't come into the planet with a stitch of clothes on them. And when you die, it doesn't matter what they put on you. You won't know it. We brought nothing into this world. We take nothing out. And having food and clothing, we decide to be content. But why can you be content with just food and just clothing? Because if you've got godliness, the balance between the spiritual and the material, godliness with contentment is great gain. But our children hear messages from us that it's about the square footage in our house, 
about the horsepower in our car, about the newness of the model, about the latest thing and the biggest gadget. If you make $45,000 a year and you live on 40, you'll feel like you're very wealthy. And if you make $300,000 a year and you try to live on 300,001, you'll always feel like the wolves are at your door chasing you. Godliness, this sense that I'm with God and I have a spiritual self-identity and I'm part of the redeemed and I'm part of the saved and I'm striving to develop love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. If I have that squared away and then can balance that, I'm okay with the size of my house and I drive a used pickup and we shop at this store rather than that store. Godliness with contentment is great value. It, it, it's, it's great gain. Now, how do we teach contentment to our children? I believe that absent of an absolute organic indigenous mental condition, all dissatisfaction and all bad behavior come from, from a, a problem or a trauma. I think we develop meanings for things because when something happens to us, we say that says something to me, that says something about me. And sometimes we don't do the math very well. Children are egocentric. They believe the world revolves around them. Now, they'll grow out of it. People who don't grow out of it have personality disorders, okay? But people who do grow out, but right now, the, the children from this row all the way back to the teenagers, are egocentric. They, they think they're the most important thing on the planet. A, a teenager walks into a room and he hears his own theme music. A teenager can't walk by a window without looking at himself. A teenager can't have a phone in their hand without doing this. Well, if everything revolves around you, then everything is also your fault. Oh, mom and dad divorced and it's because of me. That person molested me. I must have done something wrong. That person is a bully. I must be unlikable. And they, they come to these conclusions about what life is like. And then they start trying to fill this empty bucket up with stuff. Or they self-medicate. Or they're looking to create a feeling that they've never had. Or to stop a feeling they've always had. And I believe your addictions and all those kind of things come from these misinterpretations of life. And you get using this substance connected with this feeling... And it creates a lot of problems. And it's simply because our children's value systems are skewed and they don't understand up from down and down from up. So if you talked about emotional intelligence, and by the way, if you're a parent of a child, you're worried about ACT, SAT, and GPA. Those three things are not predictors for success. In fact, they're the worst predictors for success. People with 160 IQ regularly work for people with a hundred IQ. C students rule the world. But we have people skills. And a lot of these guys who are really, really, really intelligent aren't very good socially. And so if we could teach our children emotional intelligence, that helps them understand contentment because their view and their value comes from an internal source rather than an external source. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed. How does transformation take place? By the renewing of your mind. When you change the way you think, you change the way you live. Uh, 
there's a, I wrote a little book for the jiu-jitsu crowd. It's called Grappling with Life. And I take the principles of Brazilian jiu-jitsu and talk about how to have balance in your life, how to protect your inside space. And the very first principle in the book is whoever controls your head controls your body. I, without being you know, overly braggadocious or anything, if, if I put Andrew's head in a certain position, he can't move. He won't want to move, actually. And so whatever, whoever controls your head controls your body. So, so emotional intelligence is basically how do kids process their environment and how do kids think about themselves. Now, godliness is here, but all of a sudden if we've got a, a, a weird view that, that good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people, we suffer from moralistic therapeutic deism. And then we think that because... I got cancer, or my dad died in a car wreck, or my folks got divorced, something must be wrong with me and God. And understanding that, that your faith does not affect your circumstances, but don't let your circumstances affect your faith. When you read Hebrews chapter 11 and 12 together, you get this roll call of faith, and at the very end of chapter 11, he says, now all these, you know, Moses did these great things, and Noah did these great things, and Abraham did these great things, but guess what? There's some people who had the same faith that these people had, and they were killed, and they were tortured, and they were in prison, and they were captured. And what he's teaching them is just because you've had faith doesn't mean that bad things won't happen. And just because bad things happen, don't give up your faith. And then he gets into that chapter 12 where he says, don't get distracted. Don't quit. Lay aside the weight and the sin that easily ensnares you and run with endurance. Because circumstances that happen to people are because we live in a fallen creation and we're not permanent residents here. That's it. Why do bad things happen to good people? Well, there's no good people. We're all fallen creation. And if we got what we deserve, we'd all be in trouble. And so when kids start to learn, okay, I've got this relationship with God, but I'm not very content. I don't like myself. I don't like this. I don't like other people. I don't feel like a success. That comes because there's a skew or an imbalance in emotional intelligence. So, you know, a quick dive in emotional intelligence. Number one is how much insight do you have? Now, insight basically means do you understand your own personal emotions? One of the most valuable things you can teach young people is that emotional control is not not having the emotion. You know, we think that anger control is I don't get mad. Well, if you don't get mad, you're either a sociopath or you've had brain trauma, okay? It's okay to be mad. You just control how I act while I'm mad, not that I let being mad control me. It's understanding that our emotions are information. They are not necessarily instruction. Our society right now teaches our children that your emotions are your identity. That, that your diagnosis is your identity. And, you know, and we talk about I'm mad, I'm sad, I'm happy. I'm, no, I'm Lonnie. And I feel happy, I feel sad, I feel depressed or whatever. And the difference between understanding that our emotions are information versus the, that our emotions are instruction... If kids can't do that, they can't develop a good value system because all their decisions are made on, on the emotional part. Uh, I'm, I'm 60 years old, and uh, I'm going to drive an hour and a half to go home tonight. There's no way I'll drive that little pickup truck from here to Huntsville, Alabama and not stop. Do I have to explain that any further? Okay, I'm going to start listing that as part of my bio. Enjoys rock climbing, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, and frequent urination, you know. <laughs> so I, I call my wife, honey, I'm, you know, at exit 
you know, 22, and I'm stopping at a service station. 35 minutes later, I get back in the car and say, honey, I'm back in the car. She said, what took you so long? Well, there was a sign in the service station that said clean restrooms. And I had to get a mop and a bucket, some rubber gloves, some boots. I couldn't find any hot water. And she said, you idiot. The sign doesn't tell you to clean the restrooms. They tell you the restroom is clean. Your emotions tell you something. They don't tell you to do something. And so when we process emotions with our kids, teaching them the value of their emotions without teaching them that their emotions drive the bus. That's super important. Godliness and contentment. I've got this emotional storm going on, and it's okay. It's fine to have emotions. We either become emotion dismissing. You don't really feel that way. We become emotion denying. You shouldn't feel that way. Or we become emotion disapproving. You can't feel that way. It's not the way we process emotions with our kids. A kid says, I'm scared. You shouldn't be scared of that. Well, I don't even trust my own emotions. They grow up feeling like they don't understand it. I'm, I hate my teacher. You don't hate your teacher. Yes, we hate our teacher sometimes when we're in the fifth grade. Okay? I mean, that's just the way it is. Now, what are you going to do with that hate? We have to control it. I feel this way about this, so I have insight. I know that my emotions are good. I know that my emotions are healthy but I don't let them drive the bus, I control them. If I have that kind of insight, then I can practice what's known as self-regulation. And self-regulation has several components. Number one is delayed gratification. Delayed gratification simply means I don't get to, I don't get, to get what I want when I want it. I don't get to avoid what I, what's uncomfortable or unpleasant. People who can't do emotional insight and delayed gratification impulse control and motivation people who don't have the ability to do that are truly mentally ill people who choose not to do that they have the capacity but they just don't do it are maladaptive or dysfunctional but teaching our kids hey how do you have contentment well contentment comes to people who have emotional intelligence and so i understand my emotions i understand what these feelings are i don't dismiss them i don't deny them and i don't disapprove of them but i practice self-regulation and i do delayed gratification I do impulse control. I don't get to live on my impulses just because it's hard. I don't quit. Just because I'm frustrated, I don't throw it. Just because you, quote unquote, make me angry, I don't get to punch you. And then people with emotional intelligence also can do discipline. They have motivation. I can delay gratification. I can chill with my impulses. And I can put in hard work to get a long-term result. Teaching children the value, and this is a value discerning statement. What do you want now versus what you want most? In all maturity, academics, athletic, and spiritual come from those two questions. What do you want now versus what you want most? And if I can choose between the most versus the now, I've got a pretty good value system. Hebrews chapter 12. Lay aside the, the weight and the sin that easily besets you. Run with endurance the race that is set before you. Looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despised the shame, and is set down on the right hand of God. If you focus on what's happening right now, you come off the cross and you call 72,000 angels and they destroy the world. But when you think about what you want most... You endure the cross, you make fun of the shame, 
And then you rise and you sit at the right hand of God. And teaching a value system to our kid that says, hey, you can't be stuck in just the contentment mode. You can't get distracted by the things of the world. There's difficult circumstances. There's hard things. There's things you have to put up with. But if you balance that against godliness, what I want most, then I'm going to get distracted with the things that I want now. Does that make sense? I take too, too many left turns to get there. Is that everybody tracking okay? All right, so let's keep reading what Paul says to, to, to Timothy. Now, godliness with contentment is great gain because we brought nothing in this world and it certainly take nothing out, but having food and, and clothing, we shall be content with these. Now, those who desire to be rich, value system, instead of wanting to be like God, or I'm going to mix being like God with being like somebody, those who want to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and have pierced themselves through with many sorrows. So, so Paul warns Timothy, you've got to have godliness first and if you have spiritual balance with material balance, you're, that's very valuable. You know, it's great gain. But some people chase this rich thing. They have a different value system, and they chase physical, material riches over the godliness. And when they do that, they, they fall into many temptations and a snare. It's interesting, James uses the word that when we're tempted, we're drawn away by our lust and enticed. And the word drawn away and the word enticed are the Greek words for putting bait in a trap or putting a lure on the end of a fishing line. The common denominator behind all sin is selfishness. I'm vulnerable to temptation because of the things that I want. And when my wants, when my desires get on steroids and they get out of control, they become lust. Lust is not necessarily always has a sexual connotation. Lust is the idea of a want that has grown out of proportion and it becomes something that controls you rather than you control it. And so Paul's telling Timothy, these people who are out here chasing these things that really don't have any value because they won't last long, the, the people who are out here chasing these riches, they get in trouble with a temptation, they get in trouble with a snare, they follow foolish and harmful lust, and they drown men in destruction and perdition. If you've ever seen an animal caught in a, in a trap that drowns them, they go into the trap looking for something and they grab the bait and then the trap grabs them. And it's actually a very terrible way to die because we're lured into these situations because our value system is skewed and we think we want this. Now, selfishness is a common denominator behind all sin because... Sin, whatever my sin is, and whatever your sin is, is irrelevant, really. Because your sin is your personal manifestation of selfishness in your life. And my sin is the personal manifestation of selfishness in my life. And so if we could ever get a handle on the value of learning to be selfless, and selfless means we're godlike, and selfless also means we can't be greedy, we can't be hoarders, and we can't be stingy. And we're not be suffering from idolatry because we're chasing money. Because money becomes just my vehicle to serve God, not my vehicle to serve myself. Does that make sense? And if you want to measure who you should trust in life, and if you want to become a person that other people trust, 
Selfishness is, is the key. Trust and selflessness have a functional relationship with each other. And when I think somebody is selfish, I don't trust them. And when I think somebody is selfless, I inherently trust them. And so when you walk up to somebody and they're behaving, acting, thinking, or talking selfishly, you get this kind of tremor in the force in the back of your mind. And you go, hmm, I don't trust that person. Well, you don't trust people that are selfish, and, and the people that you do trust are selfless. So if you want to become a person of trust in your marriage, or with your kids, or with your employees, or at the church, or at the school, you start behaving in a way that is more godlike, selfless, for God so loved the world that he gave. Ephesians chapter 5, Jesus was submissive to the needs of the church. Therefore, he was selfless and the church submitted to him. If we ever get that as part of our, our desire, and it's not that I want to be rich, but I want to be, I want to be rich in a different way. My value is not possessions, but my value is godliness. So godliness balanced with materialism is, is very, very valuable. And if I chase the wrong thing and I have the wrong value system, I end up being pierced through with these lusts and, and these, these harmful things. I've let the clock get away from me, so skip all the way down to verse 17. It just so happens that some of us end up being rich. In fact, everybody in this room is rich. Okay? You're, you're in the top percentages of the world. You're wearing shoes. You're in the top 10% of the people in the world. You've got to choose what pair of shoes you wore. You're probably the top 5% of the world. You ate breakfast. You ate lunch. You ate supper. You're going to beat the kids up and get to the Smoothie King or whatever they're going to have outside. We're, you know, a hundred years ago, you had to be a king to tell a servant to bring you food. And now you can do that on DoorDash unbelievable how wealthy we are living in this country. So this next section is to us and about our values. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty nor to trust in uncertain riches but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. A value statement. We're teaching our children we're wealthy, we're, we're rich, we're, we're Americans. We're accomplished. We're educated. We've done these things. Well, I'm going to command the rich people, number one, not to be haughty. Now, haughty simply means that, that I look at what I've got, what I've accomplished, what I've accumulated, and I think it makes me all that in a bag of chips. I'm cooler than the other side of the pillow, okay? If you're a Division I athlete, or if you made a 33 on your ACT, or if you've got a Ph.D. in astrophysics. It's very easy for us to look at those things and say, look what I've done. Well, he says, first of all, don't be haughty. Why? Well, what did you do to deserve to have legs that were fast enough to be a Division I athlete? You don't understand, Lonnie, I've done win repeats and I've run stadium steps. Yeah, but you, you were born with a set of legs that work. What did you do to deserve that? You don't understand, i got a graduate degree and I study. Yeah, you got eyes that would read. You had a brain that would comprehend written words. What did you do to deserve that? What did you do to deserve to be born in America? What did you do to deserve to be born in Southern America? The things that we've accumulated and the things that we've accomplished, we can't be haughty about. We, we really, everything we've done, we've done on the back of a gift that somebody gave us that we didn't earn, we didn't work for, we didn't deserve. You get that? So when we start teaching our kids, oh, you're an athlete or you're an academic or you're musical or... You know, once you teach your children, you were given a gift. 
With great power comes great responsibility. That's a Spider-Man quote, by the way. <laughs> okay, it's not in the Bible. But with, with, with great power, what are you going to do with these things that you've been able to accomplish if you're a Division I athlete, if you're an MIT scholar? Command those who are rich not to be haughty. Understand that the reason you've accomplished anything is because you've done it on the gift that God gave you at the beginning. Not to be haughty and don't trust in uncertain riches. You live in Middle Tennessee. You know what an F5 tornado can do to your riches. One bad economic turn can wipe out your portfolio. One bad spark on a gas line can ruin that house. Riches are uncertain, so, so don't be haughty. Don't, don't, don't worship the self-made men, worship their makers, and it's a monument to unskilled labor. Don't worship yourself. Don't trust in uncertain riches, but put your trust in God. That's the value. Godliness with contentment is great gain. So I'm going to put my value in God and not in my circumstances, rich or poor. But if you happen to be rich, why? Put your trust in God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. God gave us things so we can enjoy. Now here's how you have joy. Let them do good that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold on life that is truly life. Now, I know your Bible probably calls that eternal life. That is not the Greek word in this text. Paul says if you take the values, the things that we see as valuable, our houses, our cars, our money, our investments, our toys, our sports, or whatever... And if we view them as vehicles to do good, to be rich in good works, ready to give and able to share, what we're doing is we're making an investment. That's a value statement. We're making an investment and building a foundation up for a time to come, what you want most rather than what you want now. And then our children learn about life that is truly life. Interesting discussion about life in the scriptures is that eternal life is not always quantitative, but qualitative. John will talk about signs, belief, and life. And John's discussion of life is not necessarily how long you live, but how you long to live. And Christianity has in it an inherent value statement for life. That we don't get distracted by things that are temporary and things that are essentially worthless. But the things of this planet are used as vehicles for our godliness. And so whatever I've got, whatever I've accomplished, whatever I, I think is my thing, if I don't use it in balance with my spiritual self-identity, my value system is skewed. So if you're going to teach your children what's really, really valuable, you've got to teach them that we are here for a purpose. Let us fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole of man. And then life, which is truly life. It's so easy for us to get distracted by the things the world says is valuable and miss out on what God says is valuable. Uh, we've been dog owners a long time. We've, we've gone through spells where we've had dogs and gone through spells where we didn't have dogs. And years ago, I had a big Rhodesian Ridgeback named Mulder. Named him after an FBI agent. Rhodesian Ridgeback, about 82 pounds. He was Rhodesian Ridgeback and fence jumper. So he's this massive dog. Instead of having a ridge on his back, he has a stripe, like those donkeys with the cross stripes. 
And he was worthless. He wasn't worth the bullet it took to kill him. He was so smart, he was hard to train. And the one thing we found out about Rhodesian Ridgebacks is Rhodesian Ridgebacks were bred in Africa to protect children from lions. And we discovered that he had that gene because somebody was chasing my daughter in the backyard one day and she squealed. And that dog had a personality change. They're like, oh wow, I could not spank her in the backyard because of this dog. He slept in the flower bed beneath her window till the day she died, till the day he died. When she moved to college, he still slept under her window. Well, we have people at our house all the time. And I thought, you know, this is going to be bad if you have a dog in your backyard and he eats somebody. So I bought a kennel to put Mulder in. And Mulder's so smart, he knew he didn't want to be in the kennel. Now, understand, I can put him in the kennel. It's traumatic for him, it's traumatic for me. <laughs> I put a shoulder harness on him and start dragging him. He sits down. I give him a little love. He, he won't growl at me, but he would mumble at me. He would, like, if you weren't you, I'd be biting you right now. And, and, and so I would get out here struggling with the dog. We had another little dog, a, a little border collie named Dusty. And my wife would call, walk out in the yard with a hot dog. And she'd walk into the kennel and she'd sit down. And Dusty would run in and she would rub his nose and scratch his ears and hand feed him a hot dog. Next day, I'm out trying to kennel train Mulder. I'm dragging Mulder toward the kennel. Jackie goes outside, sits in the kennel. Dusty runs in, gets his nose scratched, gets hand-fed a hot dog. Third day, I'm out here dragging the dog. She walks outside. He chases Dusty to the back of the yard, runs in the kennel. She closes the door, throws the hot dog over, says, he's such a man. I don't know what she meant by that, but she did. And so here this dog is in a six-by-six pen thinking, I'm in the hot dog place. I'm in the special place where they give free hot dogs. I have arrived. And he's in a six-by-six six kennel. And the other dog is free to run around on an acre. Which dog really has life? He got lured in to a cage by a hot dog. The same thing Esau did with a bucket up with a bowl of soup. Teaching our kids what is valuable is teaching them that life that is truly life is the freedom outside the cage, not the thing they get lured into and tempted into by the hot dog that the world or Satan offers us. And if we want to instill values in our children, we have to change what our focus is. Godliness with contentment is great gain, and the things that we have materialistically are the things we use to be rich in good works, willing to share, able to give, laying up a foundation for a life that is truly life. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this day. Thank you for this wonderful event and, and all the lives that have been impacted and will be impacted because this congregation opened up their doors and had children here. Father, we ask that you help us as parents of some of those children to change our value system and affect theirs. Father, we ask that you give us wisdom and discernment. Help us not to get distracted by the hot dogs but to get focused on what it is that you offer, and that's the bread of life. Father, thank you for this church, its ministers, and its elders. Father, we ask that you continue to bless this event and bless them. In Jesus' name we pray.